0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I realize I had never given a message on this particular psalm. That's not what prompted me, actually. And I'll talk about what really prompted me. The Holy Spirit, I believe, did prompt me to bring this message today. And if I don't forget, I will give more indication as to why we're looking at this great passage of Scripture. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whichever translation you have with you. Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are thy works. Because of the greatness of thy power, thine enemies will give feigned obedience to thee. All the earth will worship thee and will sing praises to thee. They will sing praises to thy name. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our foot to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You did bring us into the net. You did lay an oppressive burden upon our loins. You did make men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you did bring us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, for his loving kindness, nor his loving kindness from me. It was Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian and philosopher, who made this observation about worship. He said... Worship has an audience of one. The actors in this worship experience, where there is one in the audience, that one is God, would be us. If he is accurate in his assessment of what makes up real worship, and I believe he is, we today have an audience of one. As we sang today, we were singing unto the Lord. I hope you noticed, as we sang the songs, which we did sing congregationally, that they were all focused on the person of God Himself. We worshiped in this way. When we pray, we pray to God. When we look at the Word, we come to the Word of God with this in mind. We come to hear from Him and to not be hearers only of His Word, but to be doers also as a result of our worship. As you exit these doors, if you were exiting these doors, you'll notice there is a sign and it says the mission field begins here. When we leave this place, it's not that we should feel good about ourselves. There's nothing wrong feeling good in the Lord, being happy and holy in Christ. Absolutely not. But we should have a mission in mind to apply whatever we receive. In this place, from God's Word, we hear from God, He speaks, and we act. And then the prompter, according to the model which Soren Kierkegaard gave to us, is that teachers of the Bible, like me, should be the prompters of this great experience of worship. Well, what is characteristic in Scripture and is underscored by Soren Kierkegaard is quite different from what is normal today in American Christianity and perhaps in Christianity all over the world. The scenario has flipped. The congregation has become the audience. And the actors, just one actor, or maybe a few actors, are worship leaders, people who lead in music, people who teach the bible and the result is that god is not present in such kind of so-called worship this passage of scripture if you can imagine in your mind's eye three concentric circles a large circle and within that is a smaller circle and finally there is a very small circle in the center the Larger circle is the whole world. We're going to look at that in verses 1 through 7. The next smaller circle is the people of God as a group of worshipers. But the last is a small circle which envelops the individual worshiper. We're going to look at these in the order in which they are given to us in this psalm. So let's go back and look at verses 1 through 7. I'll make some comments about some of the words that give us insight into how we are to worship the Lord. Verse 1 of 66 says, Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Allow me to pause there for a moment. There are two other instances, at least in the Psalms. One in Psalm 95, and then again in Psalm 100, where this word which is translated, shout joyfully, occurs. And in each case, the idea of shouting joyfully is the idea of to split the ears with sound. In Joshua six sixteen, you remember the order which God gave, the captain of the army of God gave. That was probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus to Joshua. And he gave him orders. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to assemble the army. And then I want you to get seven priests who can blow the trumpet, the shofar. Then I want you to get the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to put the large majority of those soldiers in front. And I want a smaller group behind to guard the rear of the Ark of the Covenant. Then I want you to lead the people around Jericho for seven days. The first day, you go around in silence. The second, through the sixth day, you do the same. When the seventh day comes, however, you circle it seven times. The first six times, you're circling quietly. And then at the end of that, you blow the trumpet and you shout. And it was a joyful shout, undoubtedly. It was so resounding. We know what happened. The walls came tumbling down, as the spiritual song. We have sung in the past. Actually, the literal interpretation of the walls falling is they just collapsed like that. They collapsed. Due to the obedience of Joshua, the leader of the people, and the people were worshiping God. And the result was amazing. We are called upon to shout joyfully to God as part of all the inhabitants of the world. We know from Philippians chapter 2, there's coming a day when every human being, those who did not in this world and resisted, if not opposed, the worship of Jesus Christ, are going to join together to worship Him. There probably won't be any joy in the heart of the person who doesn't know Christ because there's no hope for that person in that particular moment. But it will bring a resounding shout to the Lord to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, with all mankind. We're to shout joyfully to God in our singing. This is the order that God has established. I mentioned Psalm 95 earlier. For centuries, almost from the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, that served as the template, the paradigm The picture of what is to constitute worship, and it makes no mystery for us as to why that would have been the case, because there was no Scripture per se. All Scripture, when it's spoken of in the book of the New Testament, has to do with what we call the Old Testament. And so they borrowed that, and they shouted joyfully. Look at verse 2. Sing, The glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. We're to sing. We're not just to shout. We're to sing. And we're to sing to the glory of His name. I did a little math on this passage of Scripture as to how many times either God, directly or indirectly, is mentioned in this 66th Psalm. Twenty verses. Over forty times. God is indeed the central figure. And... That should be true of us in our worship as a body of believers. Verse 3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your works. The word awesome really means fearsome. They produce fear. Beware of the greatness of your power your enemies will give. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. In other words, the enemies are afraid of God For the wrong reason. They're trying to appease God. They don't understand the grace of God. And they are actually hypocrites in the way in which they worship. They may sing the words, but there's nothing coming from the heart. It's just coming from their own minds. Verse 4 says, All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. The word worship appears here. This message, obviously, is about worshiping the Lord. The word which is translated worship, when it's found anywhere in the Old Testament, the focus is on a posture of humility. It's the idea of bowing before a superior. For instance, it describes Ruth, in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 10, bowing before her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, She was at his mercy. He was the one who gave her the opportunity to glean from the field for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she became his wife. Sometimes it pays to bow, doesn't it? It did in her case, for sure. And for David himself. David descended from none other than Ruth and Boaz. Read the genealogy at the end of this short book we call Ruth. And David himself in 1 Samuel 25 eight, is seen bowing before Saul the king. Now remember, when he did that, David had already been anointed king of Israel. But nevertheless, he was one who respected the authorities which God had placed, and he bowed before him. If we were to go back prior, even to Ruth, to Joseph, Joseph, that character in the Bible, among so few characters, seems to have been flawless. He did use poor judgment in telling the dreams that God had given him as it related to his brothers, and he, the Bible tells in Genesis chapter 37 three times, it talks about how in this dream the sheaves of grain or corn, remember that part of that dream, bowed, before There were twelve of them, bowed before Joseph. Joseph was going to be the one that they would honor as a superior, even though he was the youngest of the brothers. At least at that time, one more came along. We know him as Benjamin. But nevertheless, this idea of worship is the idea of humbling ourselves before God. Real worship, if it's anything, is humbling ourselves before God. In Genesis chapter 22, that great story where God gives an order to Abraham, which seems so out of keeping with the God whom we know. He tells him to take his son, his only son Isaac, who by this time would have been an adolescent, to a place called Moriah, Mount Moriah. And by the way, that's where Christ was crucified. Take him to Mount Moriah. And there, they would offer a sacrifice. And he made it clear to Abraham the sacrifice would be that son. Now, let me stop and ask you the question. Many of you may not know that story. But what was Isaac to Abraham? What did Isaac represent to Abraham? Isaac was his pride and joy. Isaac was the one who was going to keep his legacy alive. I'm talking about Abraham's legacy. But he obeyed the Lord. When he and his servants and his teenage son got to the foot of Mount Moriah, Abraham makes a simple statement. After he tells his entourage of servants to stay there, until he and Isaac came back. Now, notice what he says. Came back. Then he says in the English translation three simple words We will worship. What did worship involve? This is the word, by the way, that is used here by the psalmist worship. What did that involve for Abraham? What it involved for Abraham was that he had to die to his own ambition. He had to die to his own hopes to be remembered throughout the ages. God had promised. Maybe he thought could have run across his mind. Maybe I just heard wrong. Probably not. Because we know he prepared to sacrifice the boy. And then God provided a substitute in the form of a ram who was stuck with his horns in nearby bushes. Worship is humbling ourselves. Before God. That's what worship is, if it's anything. Let's go back now to verse 5. Come and see the works of God. This is what causes the enemies of God to quake, to tremble when they think of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. That would put nervousness in the hearts of people who were opposed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. But the Exodus experience is that which is referred to particularly the parting of the Red Sea and that massive throng of followers. Of God walk through dry land. Amazing. So that group of people, that outer circle, all of creation, all human beings will worship the Lord at some point in the end. But the second circle includes the people of God. That would include us as a congregation. Let's see what the Scripture would say here. Verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound His praise abroad. The word which is translated or the phrase sound his praise abroad literally means cause to hear the sound of his praise. How do we do that? Well, by worshiping him like we've already seen, to sing with joy, to sing with a lack of inhibition as we praise the Lord. Because he is the one who is our audience. I know there's some people, I remember one person in particular who is no longer with us, who would not sing, this person loved the Lord. I know that. I have ample evidence to back that up. But when asked why that person would not sing, the person says, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, and I don't want to distract other people when I sing. Look, we're not singing for each other, right? If we understand what real worship is, who are we singing to? We're singing to the Lord. Not to be heard by other people. We're singing to the Lord. Whatever we do in worship, who is our audience? The Lord, of course, is our audience. Look at verse 9. Who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. This is an odd way of saying he does not let our feet slip. And a lot of people get tripped up here. He says... In this passage of Scripture, he tried us. This means he tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. This is the word that was used in a goldsmith's place of operation. When the goldsmith was separating the pure gold from the piece of ore in which that piece of gold was found. It was necessary for the true element of gold to come forward. And this is what the Lord is doing in our our lives just as a refiner, a silversmith or a goldsmith would refine ore to get the real deal from it. That's what God is doing us when he tests us. Verse 11 says, "You did bring us into the net. Who put us in a trap? What is a net? A net is a snare. It's a trap. If you find yourself in your walk with God in a trap, you need to understand what this says, and I do too. He brings us from time to time into situations which we view as traps or nets. You did lay an oppressive burden upon our loins. Wait a minute. This doesn't sound like the God of America, does it? That God will lay an oppressive burden upon his people from time to time. You did make men right over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you did bring us out into a place of abundance. Have you ever been in a situation like is described here? A lot of pressure on you, a lot of difficulty... Sometimes people lose their faith. Many times they lose it permanently, which probably is an indication that they never really did know the Lord. Some weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the different kinds of soils. And we noted that there are those who embrace the good news with such joy. But when times of testing come, they fall away. But we see in this passage of Scripture that the story is not over for us. If we know Christ, you may be having a placid, peaceful time. I hope you are. But some of you may not be in such a situation. What does that mean? It means, wait on the Lord. He's not done yet. Creating you more fully in the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, who learned obedience... Through what He suffered. This is what God's about, and He's going to bring you out into a place of abundance. The book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, talks about the way of God. And the 12th chapter also adds so much understanding to this teaching today. Read those chapters, please do, to get fuller understanding of what this passage of Scripture is teaching. And then we can add to this one verse... Out of Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers her or him out of them all. Isn't that encouraging? So you might be in the doldrums today, but you can live victoriously in that moment. And I'm not just trying to give you some sort of placebo some sort of pill that will help you be happy when there's nothing around you to be happy. It really has virtually nothing to do with my happiness or your happiness. It has everything to do with our holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 4, if you haven't read 1 Peter recently, do yourself a favor, read it. I'm reading it again because it's in the reading for our map journal for this month. In verse 4, chapter 4, rather, verses 1 and 2 talk about when a person has suffered in the body, that would be a believing person, and responded properly by implication when you read the context. That person is done with sin. That person is not interested in sin. Doesn't mean that he or she doesn't sin anymore, but the big idea is that we are. Letting God use us, and He uses people according to His will, who have difficulty to represent Him in a beautiful way when they have difficulty in their lives. So here's the second circle. All of us, the people of God, the people of God all over this world, if we were to go to certain parts of the world today, the findings would appall us how... Difficult life is in the Middle East for believers. How most of them suffer great persecution in that area. Or in places in Asia. To a lesser degree in places in Africa. Even we in the United States are beginning to feel a little more of this pressure. We're a bunch of novices here. We're just sort of in... Kindergarten in that regard. But look at the last one. This is where I wanted to camp out a little longer. And this has to do with that inner circle, and that's the individual. This is for you and me individually. So I'm asking the Lord to help you see yourself here in the rest of this passage of Scripture. We do not know who the human author of this psalm is. We do know it was God who authored it in the sense that the Spirit of God inspired it. But look at verse 13. I shall come unto your house with burnt offerings. Here's the first part of our worshiping the Lord that's mentioned here individually. What are we supposed to do? What is a burnt offering? In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, it's been mentioned today. It's amazing how the Lord's coordinated this without communication between human beings. And the Bible says, I beseech you, the ESV is Ryan read, I entreat you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. What is the fundamental act of worship for you and me, individually? It's that we present ourselves a living sacrifice. What does that suggest? When we typically think of a sacrifice from a biblical point of view, what happens? What happens to the one who is the sacrifice or the being which is the sacrifice? That person dies, correct? And this is the first step to really worshiping the Lord. We have to die to ourselves and live unto God to present our bodies a living sacrifice. When Abraham began his journey from Ur of the Chaldees and wandered around for so long, every time he had an encounter with God, do you know what he did? He built an altar. And do you know what type of sacrifice he gave? It was not a sacrifice of atonement. It was a sacrifice of a burnt offering, meaning deeper commitment, consecration is the word, deeper consecration to the Lord. Trouble... Is designed to move us deeper into devotion to the Lord. Presenting our bodies, our being, as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Verse 14, he says, Which my lips uttered, I will pay the vows, he says, Which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. Have you ever promised God, God, if you'll just get me out of this one? Now, don't lie, okay? I'm... Uh, <laughs> Lord, if you will just deliver me from this awfulness, I will do such and such. Have you ever made a promise to the Lord in a situation like that? Has He delivered you yet? Well, if He's delivered you, have you paid your vow to the Lord? I'm not talking about money. I don't know what it would be. But have you done what you promised to do? Go ahead and do it. Read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first several verses. That will give you great incentive to do what you promised the Lord you would do in response. Verse 15 says, I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. That just is more repetition. Now look at verse 16. Come and hear all who fear God. Now I pause here a moment and talk about what it means to fear God? If we were to go to Psalm 112, verse 1, the Bible says, How blessed is the man who fears God. Tell us, Lord, what does that look like? What does it mean? Well, the Lord leaves nothing to the imagination. When He goes on to say, after He says, Blessed is the man who fears God, then what, this is what He says. He says, Who greatly delights in His commandments. Therein lies the answer to what constitutes a God-fearing person. We who fear God greatly delight in His commandments instead of seeing them as a burden. In 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome at all. They are freeing. In Psalm 119 verse 32, this is what the psalmist writes, I run in the way of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. When we know the Lord, we worship the Lord, He sets our hearts free, free from the bondage that is true of us who do not know Christ. And then when we come to know Christ, it's true of us when we refuse to walk with the Lord regularly. And in the process, we get all tied up by our own fleshly desires, as we do not obey the Lord. Look, where is the freedom to be found? What does this passage of Scripture teach us? What the Lord's going to do to us as He takes us through a lot of difficulty, then He will bring us out to a place of abundance. That's what He's going to do. And that's freedom. And that doesn't have to wait until the trial's over, by the way. He wants us to be free in the middle of it. Because of the impact that is going to have on the people who observe the way we live in that situation. We're going to be free from the fear of man. We will be fearing the Lord. Knowing that the fear of man brings a snare. And it's He that we answer to. But when we are walking in the fear of the Lord, we have freedom. Come in here, all who fear God, and I will tell you of what He has done for my soul. Here's another aspect of real worship. Personally, you c- give your life as a burnt offering. That is to say, you present your body, your whole being, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Not just some of it, you give it, you die to yourself. And then here's a second thing. You testify about it. You tell about the struggles you've had so as not to leave the impression that your life has been a piece of cake or is a piece of cake. You don't need to glorify yourself by telling these things, so you have to be careful about that. whom you speak to and what you actually say. But you tell What the Lord has done for your soul in those moments. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. He continues to do, the psalmist continues to do what he had been doing as part of the other two circles. But it's a personal thing. You know, it's one thing to come in a place like this with people, or even in a smaller setting and worship the Lord and praise the Lord. It's quite another to do it when it's just you and he, isn't it? When it's just the two of you alone. We can put on a big show publicly, but when it comes to the private aspect, realizing that Jesus Christ says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That's not an evangelistic invitation. That's to the church at Laodicea. That's to a church. And it would be to the individual members because Jesus says, whoever hears my voice. And it's a single, singular use of the word whoever, not a broadcast kind of invitation. I cried to him with my mouth and he was extolled with my tongue. I reg- if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. This particular man's testimony is that he had prayed. This is another aspect of worship. What what have we seen so far? We're to worship in song. Yes, definitely. We are also to testify of what the Lord has done. We are to pray and give our lives as burnt offerings Now, this is the part that really struck me as it never had before. I have memorized verse 18, I don't know how many years ago, probably 35 or 40 years ago. If I regard iniquity as a way, I learned it. The King, King James uses the word iniquity. And that really captures the idea of the word. The word wickedness is chosen by the New American Standard translation. Let me talk about that word wickedness for just a moment. It's a word which is the result of trouble. This is what happens to people. We see it here in this passage. What could happen and often does happen, and maybe in most cases does happen, and we have to work our way through that to get to that place of abundance in the middle of the trouble and eventually to be liberated from it, whether in this life or when this life ends. And we go to be with the Lord. Nevertheless, it's trouble that leads one to think wrongly about God. To say, well, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't have anything in mind for me. I've been mistaken about this. I don't want to have anything to do with Him anymore. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. It leads to this kind of wickedness. It happens. But this man did not give in to that. If I regard iniquities, if I have regarded iniquity or wickedness, really, is what it says, in my heart. It's in his heart. It may not be said, but it's in his heart. That's where sin comes from. It's out of the heart, the Bible talks about. Jesus speaks clearly about this in Mark chapter 7, about all the kinds of sins they originate in the heart. The Ten Commandments is covered rather well in that passage of Scripture by the Lord Jesus Christ. But if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper here this morning in a little bit. As I was thinking about this moment, I thought about my own life. This was on Friday, probably. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking, wow, I need to be more... Mindful of this particular statement. When I'm toying with sin, nibbling around the edges of wickedness, and not getting too far in, but confessing and coming out of it if I do give in to the sin, I said, this would be something that if I practice it regularly, I mean regularly, whenever I'm tempted... If I remember this teaching, if I regard iniquity in my heart, then what? The Lord will not hear my prayer. How many of us have unanswered prayers today? I would be willing to venture that a large number of unanswered prayers represented in this room are directly related to our holding on to something, namely our own lives, in terms of wanting to have something in our lives that we just don't let go of and we don't trust God with. We have not let it go. But this man had learned the secret of real worship because he had let go of that in our lives. But certainly, he says, God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer Isn't it nice to have God answer your prayer? It's awesome. Nor is loving kindness from me. How extensive, would you listen here a moment, how extensive is the loving kindness of God? More than one place, multiple places in Scripture. God tells His people to sing just a little chorus. Praise the Lord. His loving kindness endures how long? Forever. Once we are chosen to be His children, once we find ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the good news is, their sins and lawless deeds God will remember no more. Does that mean we're free to go sin? No, that's not what it says. It just says, when you come to know the Lord, the result is that He lives in you and He moves you to understand how loved you are. And that in itself serves as an opportunity for you to trust Him and do what the Word of God says. You will run free in His commandments because of what He is doing in your life you get the understanding of this passage at the end. This man was a true worshiper. Incredibly true worshiper. But do you know, if we withhold part of our heart from the Lord, we're wasting our time to come to a place like this if we're not free to give it away to the Lord, all of it to the Lord. That's the ideal, but I don't apologize For presenting the truth of God's Word as it relates to what God wants from our lives. The obstacles are clear. A lack of humility keeps us from worshiping the Lord. Lots of hypocrisy keeps us from truly worshiping the Lord. Idolatry. You know what an idol is? My pastor told me this 40 some odd years ago. It's an idol. I'm in the middle of it. That's the biggest problem anyone in this room has. It's you. You have the problem of you being at the center of your thinking and your behaving. And we all wrestle with being the center. Idolatry. Remember what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 8? He says, we know that idols, there's no such thing as a false god, he says. There's only one God. Revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. Rebellion against the Lord, especially when things don't go our way, this is another aspect. It's another obstacle in this whole matter. We are to be people who cry out to God. For pardon, and if you would look look at two other places in the Psalms 2511 for just a moment before we observe the Lord's Supper together. Wish we had time to look at the entire Psalm. Psalm 2511 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. How much iniquity would constitute too much? The slightest amount. If there's any unresolved issue in my life, in my heart, as far as who's entitled to the control of my life, and I'm consciously seeking that for the Lord to trust Him, that's something I need to seek pardon from. Verse 12 says, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should go. Psalm eighty-six, eleven says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That was David. We need to ask God to unite our hearts to fear him. That person's soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret, that means intimacy with the Lord, That's what it really means. Intimacy with the Lord is for those who fear him. And he will make them know his covenants. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Let's go to chapter 32, another Psalm of David. 25 is the Psalm of David, 32 is the Psalm of David. I've mentioned Psalm 86. It's the Psalm of David too. Verse 2, we read it earlier. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Where... Did God impute your iniquity and mine? Represented in the Lord's table. Where did He impute it? First John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. Who loved us first? Who took the initiative? Certainly it was God. Who gave His Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to be the propitiation of our sin. That simply means there's nothing simple about it for the Lord. Neither the Father nor the Son. But Jesus Christ took the wrath of God which God had stored up for generations and took it from the Father as the Father poured it out on Him. That's what the Lord's Supper signifies. What He's done for us to set us free from ourselves and from sin. And then let's look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. We can't hide from God. He knows everything. Come clean before God. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you did forgive the guilt of my sin. He pardoned him, didn't he? Amazing. He pardoned David. Amazing. And he pardons us. In the same way, when we humble ourselves before him and we trust him, we yield our lives as living sacrifices to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your table to worship you in the observance of the Lord's table today, help us not to take it in the wrong way. we told it's serious, it's very serious to mistake it. So help us to take it with this in mind. That our prayers, if prayed properly, based on our relationship to you and based on our living in an up-to-date relationship. Not concealing our transgressions, but confessing them, Lord, to you and being done with them.